welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. By happenstance, we still have some of the biggest titles at Cannes to discuss, and I couldn't be happier to talk about them with the critic Mark Ash, a longtime colleague who I've worked with as both an editor and a writer over the past decade. Mark brings a lot of goodies to the program, including Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, Sean Baker's Red Rocket, Titan, the sophomore feature from Julia Ducourneau, who directed Raw, and a couple of picks that haven't been screaming from the can headlines. Plus, JFK Revisited, which Oliver Stone teased on this very podcast about a month ago. So, let's go to the movies. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is the Can series of podcasts. That's right, another one because there are too many movies for me to ignore, and this is the only way I can cope by just producing endless podcasts. But I hope that's to your benefit and enjoyment, you, uh, the listeners. And I'm sure it will be today, because uh, actually, this might actually be a a first time on the the podcast, which is kind of insane. Um, And that is with critic Mark Ash, uh, who I go back quite a bit with. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. Uh, yes, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> I And happy Bastille Day. Yes, indeed. Yes, for the record, we are um, recording and celebrating uh, Bastille Day by storming things. I'm feeling very patriotic, very red, white, and blue, which we will actually get to. It's, I'm sure, doubly festive there as the festival comes uh, to its you know, final days. Um, because, yeah, July 14th, Bastille Day, huge national holiday. I don't know if it feels especially busy there. I imagine that there will be festivities tonight or something. I imagine there will be. And I hope that the fireworks are not so loud that they disrupt my, my screenings. Because um, I'm here for cinema and cinema only. Uh, <laughs> but... I, I am told that there was a uh, reception uh, earlier today with the mayor of Cannes that foreign journalists were invited to, where they were handing out complimentary bottles of olive oil. And it was such a good time that um, Spike Lee's translator was had abandoned him to go off and like socialize. And so he was left just listening to the mayor's speech. I'm very impressed with how many people have brought evening dress on their summer vacation. So that's never mm. something that it would have occurred to me to do. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, this is this is my first can, uh, and right. I'm getting a lot of uh, great impressions. Probably many of them false uh, because of this is the COVID can. I've been getting into everything because I'm here. There's a new online ticketing system which does not really concern you unless you're here to cover the festival, but it does mean that the people who are covering the festival are able to sort of avoid queuing for three hours and feeling like second-class citizens. I think Cannes is sort of struggling to have the sort of correct balance between cultivating an air of exclusivity and having enough people to actually fill all the screenings at the Lumiere. A tangible thing is that the three days in Cannes Pass, which is sort of a thing for students and other travelers who might not have a press or industry affiliation, but want to come as part of their vacation to the Riviera and see some movies. The three-day pass has been apparently, I'm told, extended uh, for the rest of the festival. I, th- I think there's been more people around here. It continues to be surreally beautiful. Mm. The Mediterranean, blue as Alain Delon's eyes, beautiful ocean. Can't <laughs> recommend it highly enough. And the movies have been good, which is important because I have not been into the Mediterranean. I've been 
in movie theaters, which yes. is arguably a bad decision. <laughs> that's the whole, that's always the perversity of the, the can visit, uh, because at least the way I've experienced it, I'm simply scurrying from one dark you know, theater to the next and blinking for a little while and saying, oh, look at that. That's pretty. And then, you know, running to keep up with some succession of impossibly scheduled appointments and that sort of thing. Because everyone assumes, oh, you're in Cannes, you, you know, someone must be feeding you grapes on a yacht or something. But I'm, I'm usually just overdosing on baguette sandwiches. I think if you have a pink pass, there are actually yachts where they do feed you grapes. But I wouldn't know. I'm, my pass is merely yellow. Fortunately, that, that hasn't stood in the way. They have not stood in the way of your encounters with cinema. And I'm glad to have you on to talk about the movies that you will talk about. Um, we were weaned on the cycle of, you know, hype and rejection that went on with Wes Anderson. But I mean, it's, it's almost worth asking, like, was it possible to experience this movie with fresh eyes? Or is that, I don't know, maybe that's kind of a meta question. Well, well, the fresh eyes question is interesting because I think this is such a self-reflexive movie from, from Wes Anderson. As I think increasingly his films maybe are, I think a lot of his pet themes are sort of iterated and reiterated uh, throughout the movies. And also, I think, I thought you were going to say the reason why you and I are well-equipped to talk about this movie is because we are veterans of the New York City print media and... It's, ah. it's waning, oh boy. it's waning golden years of uh, expense accounts and wor- endless word counts, two things which um, <laughs> I personally know very little about in my experience in New York media, but I'd heard rumors, which is why I trudged along so long in the profession initially, because I had been told that there would be, uh, that I had been told that there would be glamour, that there would be old world glamour and erudition and I think Wes Anderson felt the same way growing up in Texas. I presume he was a New Yorker subscriber and dreamed of someday making that great leap from being the kind of person who reads the New Yorker to the kind of person who writes for it, as he has done. Mm. The French Dispatch, that I believe the full title is The French Dispatch of the Liberty, Kansas Evening Sun, uh, is a movie that asks a question on all of our minds, which is, what if the New Yorker was in Paris? It's not really. <laughs> it's about much more than that, but it's also really about what if the New Yorker was in Paris. It's set in Ennui sur Blase, which is what Paris is called in this movie, and it is about the staff of a weekly mag of a print weekly magazine that was published from the twenties to the seventies. The film is dedicated to Harold Ross and William Shawn and a lot of other. New Yorker writers who are referenced with sort of inside jokes throughout the film. There's a Ved Meta reference, which is something I honestly never thought I would say about a movie. And Joseph Mitchell. And at one point you hear sections from the story that Frances McDormand's character is writing and her prose style is actually a very credible sort of clipped, definitive, bold and erudite sort of Janet Malcolm style of writing. Hmm. I was sort of wondering, I knew a little bit about this movie going in, that it was about this basically New Yorker-like magazine in France, and I was kind of expecting it to be about the paper itself. I don't know if you read uh, The Imperfectionists by Tom Rockman, which is about uh, a sort of Herald Tribune-like paper in, I think, Rome. And it's about, 
it's set over like a series of like vignettish chapters about different figures at the at at this paper and is nostalgic about like the death of print and the end of this era of like literary ambition and expatriation and the sort of like mythology built up around the writer but the french dispatch is actually structured like a magazine with sort of short films within it that are stories from the magazine with the sort of star writers the james baldwin and maybe also a little bit of aj liebling and mavis gallant types as sort of belletrist observer participants in a series of vignettes. Should we say what the vignettes are or should we let them be discovered? I think I think it would be good to hear about, you know, maybe a couple, especially a couple that are, you know, aren't in, in the trailer. I mean, I think it would be, my understanding of the movie is pretty meager. So if, mm. if, if I knew about the stories, that, that would almost also help me figure out how, because it almost sounds experimental. I mean, to have a movie where you're splitting it up into stories like that actually sounds to me like pretty adventuresome for a movie on this scale. Well, in some sense, it's like his Buster Scruggs. And I think that like Buster Scruggs, it's Interesting. a very, it's I think like a fairly major and self-reflexive work that is structured like a series of sketches. Mm-hmm. So you have sort of an, a talk of the town type exposition with Owen Wilson riding around on a bicycle and introducing you to the city and telling tales of the Demimond in a voice that sort of opens up or grounds you in the sort of voice of the French Dispatch, which is the voice of the New Yorker, this sort of um, knowing, lapidary, curious, not fully objective type of bemused American abroad literary voice. And that's the sort of aperitif, which is a French word. Um, I just want to pause. (laughs) just want to... (laughs) I just want to pause to, to uh, appreciate that very succinct uh, su- summary that's very apt. <laughs> well, it's thank you. I, I, I know how much I know how much summaries are the bane of, of, of all podcasters and something I struggle with too. Uh, <laughs> no, but, no, and also just particularly of the New Yorker voice. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they're not they're not there to convey they're not there to convey facts. They're there to to tell stories. So, which is interesting because the first um, one is sort of, I guess it would be in the Lifes and Letters tab in The New Yorker. It's Tilda Swinton as a sort of Judith Thurman type adventurous high-class art writer who has like encounters, who has encounters with artists and insights into them. And the artist in this case is Moses Rosenthaler, played by Benicio Del Toro. The Moses, I think, is probably a reference to Grandma Moses because he's an outsider artist who is in inmate in a French penitentiary where all the inmates wear smocks and espadrilles because this is a Wes Anderson movie. The prison scenes are predominantly in black and white. Actually, a surprising amount of this movie is in black and white, Hmm. which is not to say that it lacks the visual interest that you've come to expect from Wes Anderson. I think he's really exploring. There are, I think, multiple genres of black and white that he is doing over the course of the vignettes, uh, which is also really interesting. Hmm. So the first one is about this outsider artist. And I think, again, like Buster Scruggs, it is really concerned with art and money because Adrian Brody, wearing one of several Peach Fuzz pencil mustaches in the film, plays Benicio Del Toro's gallerist, who is obsessed with bringing this genius incarcerated painter to the Peggy Guggenheims of the world or their equivalents in this film, because everybody in this film has an equivalent or several. Mm. 
I think much maybe more so explicitly than, again, I keep coming back to the Coens with this because I think this is a very magpie movie. I think Wes Anderson is always doing, he always has references, but I don't know that he is mixing writers up in the same way and making sort of very explicit callbacks that are also integrated into his own world building. Mm. And it, if you were an, if you were a New Yorker groupie like Wes Anderson presumably was growing up, it's a great thrill to be a total train spotter for part of the movie. The second vignette is well, I'll skip to the third one while I remember the second one. Uh, it's, uh, it's Jeffrey Wright as a sort of James Baldwin type who's writing an AJ Liebling type story about the genius chef of this Paris police precinct and then gets sort of swept up in this again of a sort of black and white. Uh, Rafifi type drama about mm. and the the third type of sort of black and white is in the the middle sequence with Frances McDormand doing basically Mavis Gallant and her May 68 dispatches for the New Yorker with Timothy Chalamet again with Peach Fuzz Pencil Mustache as the student leader sort of the Jean-Pierre Lyod type he is photographed looking like Lyod in bed in The Mother and the Whore and he is photographed looking like Lyod in mm. Masculine, feminine, and Le Chinois. He's in Le Chinois, right? I think so, yeah. I, I hope so, because uh, it would be embarrassing <laughs> for Wes Anderson if Laod wasn't in Le Chinois, because this middle segment strongly implies that he is. So we have, uh, and this in this middle segment is sort of about the sort of romance of youthful folly. The Laod is sort of a very, the, the Chalamet character, the Laod figure, is a very Max Fisher type of naive, self-conscious overcompensating romantic uh, student radical. And yeah, Anderson's concerns, I think, are very, the core concerns of his work are present throughout these vignettes. Art and money, uh, youth, and how we build nostalgia around it, found families, and related to that, the search for home. There's a very, I think, a quite moving sequence in the last one where Jeffrey Wright has James Baldwin, a black gay American writer in Paris, has a great speech about going to cafes and food and the idea of hospitality and how that ties into the yearning for home in a new place, which I think connects back to Grand Budapest Hotel and the sense of yearning for a lost place and time is just so central to Wes Anderson, whose breakthrough film was about a guy who wished he could stay in high school forever. So it's... Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty, maybe almost a sort of a skeleton key anthology omnibus type, or like to use a very Wes Anderson metaphor, sort of like a cross-section or dollhouse where every room is a story that is very important to him and about things that are very important to him. Mm. And it's made so lovingly. Yeah. I mean, one, one question that comes to mind since populating this, this dollhouse is uh, such a large and varied cast i mean you know a lot of them obviously uh, wes anderson players i mean it's always interesting to me when uh, an actor is able to kind of carve out his own space uh, in an anderson movie in some way um i'm curious how that plays out in in this case well i mentioned jeffrey wright and it's actually very interesting it's he appears as the new yorker writer who is or the french dispatch writer on a sort of dick cavett type show where he and the host liv schreiber are wearing like leisure suits and smoking and he gets a lot of time and space because he's got the he's given these words that are and that are anderson's that are i think are very personal to him and the movie sort of 
pauses for him to... It's also, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that this is the device, but he plays a character with a typographic memory, which means he has like a photographic memory, but about words that he's written, which allows him to sort of be doing a recitation. And so the space that is given to his words, which are about, among other things, being an American in Paris, as Wes Anderson also is, are given a lot of respect. And I don't remember right in any other Anderson movies. Uh, This is sort of the drawback of talking rather than writing. Um, So I apologize to him if I've completely blanked on anything else he's done for Wes Anderson in the past. But it's a new presence and a new sort of because usually his narrators are off screen moving the action along in a very sort of New Yorker type voice. And this is a guy who is really doing a real because also he's on he's filming a TV show. So he's doing director a direct address to the audience, like face to face. And I think it's new for that might actually be sort of new for him, that kind of that kind of direct address. And I think that's fitting because I think that he's what he's saying is very close to the filmmaker. Mm. Yeah, I, I think you might have already also talked about this, but I mean, you know, I, I find the comparison to Buster Scruggs really interesting. Um, I mean, that's also a movie I really, really like and and kind of baffled with how it was just sort of dismissed, I mean, to a large extent by a lot of uh, critics, I think partly because of its provenance in a way. But I mean, one thing about that movie is that being the Coen brothers is a lot of outlandish um, scenarios but i don't know there are there are a couple of stories in there that are pretty devastating right alongside stories that are like very whimsical and so i'm curious what the you know kind of emotional tenor is for for this film because it seems like it would be hard to go too deep in a way if that makes sense when you are switching between the stories but maybe you've just answered that in a way well i think well yeah i mean and the movie sort of slows down for him but at the same time, there is a lot of whimsy, and there are a lot of, um, I think in multiple times he does freeze-frame three-dimensional tableaus that are like dioramas of riots, like a prison riot in the first one, or like the kind of like great art riot, like uh, Rite of Spring style art riots that they that used to happen in a more glamorous highbrow past, one of which happens at the Iowa State Fair where an abstract expressionist painting is being shown and so there's this great freeze frame tableau so lovingly made so detailed this i think this i think all the set pieces in this movie are incredibly rewatchable just because of the amount of care that's gone into them but as they're rioting at the at the state fair over this painting there are corn cobs flying everywhere pitchforks and it just feels and thinking about it like that is like a very whimsical sort of sight gag and something that is maybe intricate and a very beautiful surface, but also embedded in that is maybe a ser- is maybe a serious consideration of the place for ambitious, abstract, non-commercial art in Middle America. I, I mean, I know that we're only like a couple of decades away from Wes Anderson doing the Eugene Green thing and pretending that he doesn't speak English, but I. Th- but for now, I think <laughs> he's. But for now, like that's embedded within this sort of whimsical throwaway joke is maybe a serious consideration of the place for art amongst the cornfields, which, again, is something that I think he mm. is something I think he cares about. I think it's there in Rushmore, too. Mm. So, I, yeah, so I think there is a lot of cartoonishness in it, but I think it's also 
And in fact, there's literal cartoonishness in it because I think there are some wonderful mock-up French dispatch covers that play over the end credits with like actually very good uh, jokes. I'm not sure who did the credits. I missed that credit as I was packing my backpack up after the screening, but shout out to them because they're very good. They're very good fake New Yorker covers and we would expect nothing less from Wes Anderson. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's endless more stories about this. the stories. Um, you know, this is a movie that's, I think one can only have sort of first impressions at, at this point. Um, but I feel like I have a better uh, map to it now. And also, sorry, one little thing is that when you were talking about like the corn cobs flying, I, I, I immediately thought to, of the poster, uh, which is, you know, actually like a tin tin cover. Mm-hmm. So it made me think of those kind of little set piece action panels in Tintin oh, when you were describing that. There, there's some definite Tintin vibes, uh, especially in the third one, the Rafifi mm. one. I think yeah. there's a lot. So the, the Franco-American cross currents are quite, uh, yes. quite strong. The red, white, and blue. The red, white, and blue. That's what I was going How for. How appropriate. And actually, <laughs> if you would like me to do a transition now, I have one. Please. To the film that I've, that I've just come from. Red Rocket from Sean Baker, the director of Starlit, Tangerine, The Florida Project. Uh, And like those films, this is a film concerned with sex work and sex workers. It's about an adult film actor's maybe retired or persona non grata adult film actor's life off screen. It stars Simon Rex, who I gather was some sort of MTV VJ, who, when he was a, a young hick kid in Los Angeles, did some pornography before he got going as an actor. I gather that his vibe is very, like, very Audie's bottle service LA clubs. I don't know. I, I assume the bling ring robbed yeah. him. He's that, kind of per- he's that kind of person, from what I understand. <laughs> and that's all uh-huh. sort of referenced in... The film opens to the sweet, sweet strains of Bye 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 by NSYNC. And the opening shot is quite literally Some Came Running. Uh, it's about a guy who's sort of like a, a big swinging dick, uh, in this case in more than one senses, which we'll get to, who wakes up sort of messed up on a Greyhound bus that's pulling back into the hometown he swore he'd never return to and is now back to. And I'm sure that's a conscious reference. Mm. In this case, the hometown is... Texas City, Texas, which is um, a Gulf Coast oil refinery town. There are a lot of oil tanks and flaming towers and smokestacks in the background. This is another Sean Baker movie where he goes to the sort of parts of the Sun Belt where less glamorous people live and shoots them in widescreen with blazing natural sunlight and lots of pastels. There's a wonderful donut shop where a lot of the action takes place, where the outside is and like pink and yellow, and the inside is full of donuts. And Simon Rex plays Mikey Saber. Saber is not his real name. Saber is a reference to the size of his penis, but he comes home because he's worn out his welcome in LA. Uh, and he crashes at his, I was going to say ex wife, but they're still married, but with her and his still mother in law, and tries to like hustle up some money and plot his comeback, basically. This is sort of an interesting movie for Sean Maker to make because he's a strikingly bad person. And I think usually, and there is a lot of empathy for it, but I think usually Sean Baker, when he's making movies about charismatic, silver-tongued hustler types, has a sort of everyone has their reasons type of thing and is grateful for the way that they light up his films and sort of captivated by their personality. And 
Mikey Saber has, I think, ample chances to show his depth. And I think from Simon Rex, who's an actor, I'm not really familiar with his work as a actor, but I, it is like a very interesting and magnetic performance from a guy who maybe now has a persona to reflect on, like a, a guy who's sort of trapped in this particular moment in history and version of masculinity. But Mikey Saber himself is a misogynist and a braggart and not a particularly sympathetic figure, even in his delusions. So that's new and interesting. And I think it's a little, I think it's a good maybe move for Baker to make because it's a, it's tougher, I think a tougher minded kind of central characterization. And also, which is new for Sean Baker, it's maybe sort of ambivalent about sex work in a different way than his previous movies have been. Because like, I think there's going to be some discourse about this movie because um, Mikey Saber sort of seizes on as his comeback uh, the girl who works at the donut shop, a 17-year-old named Strawberry who he grooms for stardom and also maybe arguably just grooms. I think, as I said, there's going to be some discourse around this movie. This is a movie about a man in his 40s dating a 17-year-old and trying to convince her to move to Los Angeles to do porn. But I think that that plot line is handled with a certain amount of, it doesn't ring false in any way in her curiosity about him and about, or attraction to him or curiosity about the milieu, the extent to which it's going to be is shaping up over the course of the movie to be an exploitative relationship is Mm -hmm. something that is explored, I think, in a, in a very interesting and open-ended way. So, so Red Rocket, the title Aside from the obvious implication, also, I think, suggests Rocket's Red Glare. Uh, This is a film which is set in the late summer of 2016. So Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are on television in the background all the time, accepting accepting their nominations at their conventions. Uh, Mikey Saber is rolling a joint in Stars and Stripes rolling papers uh, as Donald Trump is on television in the background. Uh, and there's nods to stuff that are like firearms and the castle doctrine and gun crazy gated subdivisions. There's like a little stolen valor subplot for some reason. There's the opioid crisis is alluded to. Mm. Red Rocket, I think, is shall we say too long a little bit. It's over two hours, which I don't think it needs to be. But having seen Flag Day, which I know you've talked about on this podcast, yes, it strikes me as a much more credible. <laughs> it strikes me as a much more credible film about an adult man and young woman's relationship, which is a metaphor for America, among many other things. So that's Red Rocket. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's a movie that's really was kept under wraps for for a while. I'm quite curious, I, I, and I'm kind of looking forward to, to seeing it because I, I guess I have been impressed with how Baker has been using the frame and mm. uh, just plunging into whatever camera of choice he's, he's been working with on each film. Um, so I, I, I always appreciate, you know, someone trying a little something there. So, and did you say, I mean, is Simon Rex good? Yeah. Is he acting? I don't know. But he's good. Mm. I mean, Sean Penn's acting in Flag Day. I don't know if Simon Rex is acting in Red Rocket, but I know who's giving a better performance. Uh, but I mean, at a certain yeah. at a certain point, like having enough self awareness about the kind of person the world thinks you are to embody that on mm. screen in a two hour movie that is built around your energy. Yeah, I think it's actually. Right. I think it's a major performance. I don't know if I, I haven't seen a ton of great male performances at Cannes so far. 
Interesting. But this yeah. is a really, it's also interesting because um, this has been a great can for naked acting. There has been a lot of naked acting at Cannes, which if you want, could be a uh, transition to Titanium, which also features a lot of naked acting. Absolutely. Yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so Simon, so, so the titular Red Rocket is, I think, the first real kind of male performance we've seen at this year's Cannes where you have to sort of go to a lot of places while also nude as a performer. But like having you guys having talked on this podcast about Benedetta, among many other things, this has been a real standout year for naked acting. And the film I saw last night is, um, I think, the apex of that trend, which is Julia de Cournot's Titanium, her follow-up to Raw, which... Uh, Did you like Raw? I forget. I, I only saw Raw in preparation for coming to Cannes, and I did like Raw. I, ooh, baby, I liked it. Yeah. Raw. And it's, it's interesting, like, and I will say this when I finish writing about it, but I think Raw, I think, is, has a very central metaphor basically about a young woman discovering her appetites in whatever that means it means many things whereas i think titanium is a much more diffuse work that is riffing on a number of related themes i think in some ways it's 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 less thesis driven than raw but i think the filmmaker has become more sophisticated at playing with audiences with audience expectations which I mean, Raw certainly did, but I think it, it it comes to another level in this. It feel it's a very it's a very confident film, Titanium, mm. which um, is named more or less for the titular Titanium is a plate in the head of a character Alexia, played by uh, an actress whose name is not pronounced Agatha Roussel, but that's how I pronounce it because she's French. <laughs> And she is introduced uh, as an adult as one of the girls who grinds on the hood of cars at a car show. And we begin with this sort of like slasher movie, who's the predator, who's the prey kind of encounter with a guy who's apparently a really big fan. Also, like all the car show honeys like have like multiple guys coming up after they hop down off of the car. Like all these guys come up to the and ask, ask for their autographs, like in pen, which is very... Hmm. Which is very strange. Like, not only are all of the girls who twerk on the hoods of cars celebrities, but they are celebrities from the 20th century. It's This movie is maybe not operating at, like, a fully... The verisimilitude in this movie is, as you might expect, is not really at our register of reality. Yeah. Wait, so, wait, are you saying it's set in, in, like, an alternate present rather than, like, a science fiction future, or...? I don't really know it seems to be set in the present it's not really set in the future but it is interested in what the future holds for human bodies for human gender for human families Mm. it's very Cronenbergian in that sense I mean I think that's the obvious reference because I've been talking about titanium and car like a person who's like has a little bit of metal in her and erotic automobiles and that's very much a part of the movie I'm sort of talking around what this movie is actually about because I don't want I don't want to say too much and maybe this is just like me being precious about my first year at Cannes but this is like the first movie I've seen here that where I've been in the simultaneous press screening to the gala premiere at the Lumiere and I've gone in more or less completely cold and been in a full house mm. and felt really thrilled and surprised 
would li- and I do think that there's some value in preserving that experience for the people who see this film. But I will say that there is um, a lot of body horror stuff in the early part of the film. And then it sort of becomes very unexpectedly a film about, under circumstances I don't want to go into too much, about this titanium plated car show hottie who has killed multiple men becoming sort of the ward, like the foundling type mascot of this firehouse overseen by Vincent Lindon, who is um, Mm. in incredibly good shape uh, in this movie. He is also like, he's an aging man who is uh, a very macho aging man and is in very good shape and is trying to maintain that shape. So he is injecting himself with steroids and Vincent Lindon, when he clenches his buttocks to inject the steroids into, uh, they are... they must they must be seen on the big screen his his glutes uh so there's an element there of um male body modification as well as female and i think there's some potential talking points in the film for how decorno handles uh gender identity which i think are very tender and progressive and uh understanding and hopeful but also she is always teasing you with the next gross out as in raw there is a lot of scratching at skin Mm. and there are some very impressive practical effects uh having to do with welts and scratches and itches and piercings and all sorts of things of that nature you're effectively making my skin crawl here (laughs) i i sort of had like my forearm up like at the ready in case i needed to block my eyes i think it's sort of like a game that she play that she plays a little bit before each effect. So she doesn't really do jump scares. She does. Um, she does not trying to shock you. She's trying to tease you by making you wonder whether this upcoming gross out effect, which is telegraphed and being set up and staged for you, is going to be done with an insert close up of a practical gore effect, or if the camera's going to pan up to the actor's face reacting to what you what you know is happening off screen with like very credible off-screen sound. So it's sort of like a very audiovisual game that she's playing with you uh and playing with your mm. um with your gag with your gag reflex. It's very it's very visceral uh in a way that I think makes for a special and intense experience when it's seen in a full theater. So yeah, movie magic, really. That yeah, that does I don't know if enticing is is the word, but um, I mean, certainly I'm intrigued by this film grammar you're sketching out, Mm -hmm. Um, but we don't have to say anything more uh, about the film because I do respect what you're saying. But yeah, so that's titanium or titan. Titan, I guess. In the original French. Yeah. Titan from uh, Julia Ducourneau. And that's a competition title. I think Raw was in the director's fortnight, if I remember correctly. Yeah, this is, I don't, I don't know anything about Cannes Awards, but I think, as I said, there have been a ton of really impressive female performances uh, at this year's Cannes. Mm. Um, Virginie uh, Efren, Efren in, in Benedetta, Renata Rensfi in The Worst Person in the World, a film that's not in competition, but Luma the Cow in Cow uh, is, is a very, mm. very beautiful and very expressive uh, shout out to Luma. But I think in terms of the sort of what is asked of her, and how exposed she is on screen. I think this is maybe the most 
mm. extreme and challenging performance at a can full of really wonderful actresses so far. So I think we're probably um, coming coming to the end of the, the lineup, but we I think there was maybe one uh, one or two other titles you wanted to uh, shout out. Yeah, I uh, just sort of lower profile titles. Which ones were those again? Well, let's let's go with. Um, I'll do very quickly. Uh, compartment number six by uh, the Finnish director Juho Kosmanen, who won mm-hmm. Uncertain Regard in twenty sixteen with the Happiest Day in the Life of Ali Maki, which is a really wonderfully put together sixteen millimeter black and white film about Finland in the early sixties and all of the different types of cultural currents that were circulating there in that time that are manifest in the locations and the production design and the clothes, all of these sort of NATO influences and old Nordic rustic stuff and Russian influences. And his new film, Compartment Number 6, is about a Finnish woman and a Russian man on a sleeper car journey from Moscow to Murmansk. And I think what is interesting about this film is that all the train scenes were shot on moving trains uh, that were rented from the Russian state railway. On their shooting days, they did 10 or 12-hour out-and-back loops they had to schedule the train journeys for their train shooting days so that it didn't disrupt like the passenger and freight timetable on the tracks that they were using. Because there aren't just like train tracks that are just there that you can use. You have to like, if you want to move a train, you have to move it on tracks, which already exist. And they have these wonderful trains from Russian trains from the 90s with the wood paneled wall and all of the sort of sickly garish textiles and... 35 millimeter uh, with very with fairly wide angle lenses to get up close to the actors in these compartments uh, where they didn't want to tear down the walls or anything to, to be able to break up how they shot it. They wanted to be right in there. They changed the bulbs to use the lights because you can't set up lights in there. They hid radio microphones all around the compartments because you can't get a boom mic in a sleeper compartment with two actors and a camera. So it's this very impressive technical feat and it, the movie is about two people from different backgrounds who become friends but as an evocation of a time and a place that is done so resourcefully and with such resonance and interest in and curiosity for this particular moment in the past and at such a high degree of difficulty that's something that I'm really taken to and trains are very cinematic as we all know uh, the way that um, each individual frame of celluloid flows through the projector beam is like train cars passing you one by one. And that's compartment number six. Yes. In all honesty, I, I do think of that uh, when I'm when I'm on a train, especially if you, you know, are snapping photos away of the things that are going past in the background. Um, yeah. I mean, what you call eight millimeter narrow gauge film, which is also a type of railroad. So you, mm, mm, yeah, yeah, trains. Yeah. Um, train. <laughs> and the other one that's, if uh, the other one that we were going to talk about, I think, was um, oh, a, film, yeah. a film that you've seen. Yes. Which um, I wanted to talk about um, because I thought it was interesting and I'm glad I saw it. It's The Innocence by Eskel Voigt, the Norwegian filmmaker who is a frequent co writer of Joachim Trier, who's the worst person in the world you talked about earlier on this podcast. Um, the Innocence, it's about children in a Norwegian tower block who have special abilities, let's say. Um, Voight, I think, co-wrote Thelma, which is a sort of carry riff about a telekinetic teenager. There is some child telekinesis in this. There is some uh, child telepathy and some other things of that nature. And I think this goes further in the Stephen King vein. 
in terms of um, having an ensemble of prepubescent children to whom bad things happen. That's, I think, something that is very characteristic of maybe of like a of Stephen King thing, not just the premise, but the way in which children hurt each other, parents hurting children, which is maybe sort yeah. of the final taboo in cinema. And I think he really goes there. The other thing that he's doing is um, doing a sort of ethnically diverse modern Norway casting with the children in the tower block. And there is uh, an intact white family who are the heroes and there are um, Muslim children raised by single mothers for whom he has other plans in the narrative and it's not it's not harmless I don't think and I think it's a real I think it's a real problem for the movie but I think that's a shame because Mm. there's some stuff in it that's very this is I was at a public screening where the young children the young actresses were helping the director to introduce the film and they were shepherded out of the film about 20 minutes in because there's some stuff in it that they should not see, even though they were there on set and doing it when it happened. There's some cruelty to animal scenes uh, that are, have been very divisive and inspired some walkouts from adults as well. But I think it's, I think it's a really bold film. I think it's quite well made. I think the willingness to explore the darkness in children and their loneliness and their cruelty, and I think it's quite well made. And he's a talented filmmaker, but I just don't think it's ever gonna. I don't. I just don't think you can release it in the United States. So that's why I wanted to talk about it on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you just put the nail in the coffin for it. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's... I mean, if, 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 a, I, if, it, if it's up to me. <laughs> I mean, this was a vexing film for me. I mean, it's for a number of the reasons that you said, it's hard for me to separate out the positive qualities of it, positive in the sense of, um, you know, it's a genuinely creepy and shocking supernatural or horror premise mm. uh, that's all the more kind of, unnerving and shocking because of how dry it can be um, and how stripped down it can feel um, to the point where it almost felt like it was a challenge he set for himself as a screenwriter. It's like, can I make a movie that's about this? I mean, because this, it's really a movie where a child can think something and then it happens. And that's liberating, I guess, for a screenwriter in some regards. <laughs> but in other regards, actually making the story and, and realizing that scenario and, and maintaining tension around that when sort of anything can happen that sort of can be a feat. But, you know, that said, it, it is hard for me to separate the, uh, some of the elements you were talking about, which I didn't even feel were that crucial to the effect of the film. So it's, it's a bit of a tough one. Also, one other thing in it that I sometimes had mixed feelings about how it was handled um, was that one of the characters has a, a sister uh, who I guess is autistic. And that's, I mean, that's kind of folded into the whole plotting of these kind of uh, supernatural abilities and what they make one capable of, which sort of, sort of felt dicey yeah, <laughs> at times. Yeah, that's that, that, that was also flagged. Yeah, for sure. So I don't know. But yeah, that's, yeah, that's the innocence. Um, proceed, <laughs> proceed with caution, I guess. <laughs> but um. I think we've covered a fair amount of ground, and I'm still only a fraction of what uh, of what you've seen. I know there are um, some more we could talk about. You did. I did say I would leave you a spot 
to disclose anything um, about JFK that uh, you felt the public needs to know? Well, I think the public, <laughs> well, the public I know has seen JFK 1991, Oliver Stone's 1991 film. Mm-hmm. And I know the public has seen that film because so much of that movie is in how the public feels about the JFK assassination. And I think making a documentary about it is, in, is in, an interesting project in some ways because he's already made such an effective piece of pop agitprop that has been mm. so influential. And I have had senior citizen, like Icelandic landladies, telling me, like, over scones that the CIA killed Kennedy because he was too liberal. And, you know, that's where she got it from. And making a documentary about it, I, I don't think it will have the same impact in cachet. I think he's made, um, I think a lot of what's in the film is, was covered or dramatized very effectively in his fiction film. And there are clips from JFK and JFK Through the Looking Glass. Hmm. I will say that when, uh, when Oliver Stone was on your podcast, um, I, I, I listened to it and I got a fairly good idea of I think I have a pretty good idea of what politics podcasts he listens to and what politics YouTubers he he follows. I think his interest in uh, continuities between the two major political parties and the so-called deep state, I think, is something that's very present in our current political moment. And I wonder if he could have gone there more deeply in this film than he did because that's the sort of new context for this. But I think also, I think JFK also is a film that could very easily be transplanted into this political moment. And having only very recently seen it, I was shocked by how much it spoke to current debates about American, American imperialism and trust of the government and conspiracy and the differences or lack of differences between the two major political parties and so I think that uh, JFK Through the Looking Glass uh, attempts to sort of update the material and make it have uh, a call to action, as many document- contemporary documentaries are told to have. Uh, but I can't think of a more effective call to action than Kevin Costner looking straight into the camera at the, t- at the very end of a three-hour Warner Brothers release and saying, it's up to you. Although he says it in a terrible New Orleans accent, it's up to you. That's my quick hit on JFK yeah. to the Looking Glass. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me of that that final uh, final shot. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking I, mean, I I might swipe that as as an ending for my podcast from now on. Uh, <laughs> although it's also it's close to another ending that I think I might have used once or twice, which is the uh, uh, Maury Povich a current affair. Um, until next time, America, um, <laughs> which I've always enjoyed as well. But uh, yeah, that's JFK Through the uh, Looking Glass, directed by uh, previous podcast guest uh, and filmmaker, uh, Oliver Stone. I think we will um, we'll leave it at that. And I, I think I just always want to make sure that folks listening know where you'll be writing uh, these films. So if you want to talk a bit about that. Yeah, I've been doing biweekly dispatches from Cannes for Inside Hook, the website Inside Hook, which is, as you might expect, InsideHook.com and reviews uh, of competition titles alongside my wonderful colleagues and can roommates for Little White Lies, the UK film magazine, which is lwlies.com. Those are the places for whom I have been producing content. 
Very good. So I encourage everyone to uh, to read Mark's reviews, and I'm I'm almost a little drained um, because we these were these are pretty just exhausting films in a way that we've talked about in in their separate different ways. Well, I always imagined that Can would be like this. That every day I would be coming and seeing a movie that I could talk about for this <laughs> long, uh, and that it would be <laughs> worth talking about for this long. So this is just yes exhilarating for me. So thank you so much for having me on. Oh, well, thank you for, for taking the time. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll do it again. And who knows, next time, perhaps, uh, next year in Cannes, we will perhaps be uh, podcasting in, in person. May we? Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.